This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. The recent life-threatening injury of Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin, where he went into cardiac arrest after what appeared to be a routine tackle, has renewed conversations about safety in football. Thankfully, it appears that Hamlin is on the road to recovery, but his high-profile injury has us questioning if it is even possible to make football a safer game, and what, if any, role plays in a sport where profits have become astronomical. Today, we talk about the role of players, coaches, and families, and even the fans, in football safety with Craig Moore. Craig is the assistant head coach offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Hocking College, where he also serves as the school's assistant athletic director and director of compliance. Craig played quarterback at Quincy University and at Rock Valley College, where he was an All-American. He holds a graduate degree from Ohio University, an undergraduate degree from Quincy University, and has spent more than 13 years in coaching. Craig, thanks for joining me. For the record, I want to recognize that Craig played for me at Rock Valley College. We were a community college program before Last Chance U um, popularized uh, JUCO athletics outside of the football world. Special shout out to our head coach, Jeremy Warren, and all the Golden Eagles, as Jay Welch would say, where my bird's at. Thanks for having me. That's all I understand. Sorry if there's too much background noise. I'm here at the National Coaches Convention. Let's go ahead and get into it. So the first question, right? We we all, I think DeMar Hamlin's freak injury and the result of the hit is going to be a kind of thing that everybody remembers where they were, or how they saw it. Talk a little bit about where you were, what your feelings were when you saw DeMar's hit and his subsequent injury. Uh, we actually watched it live. I was sitting with my wife, Jennifer. We knew immediately something wasn't right when he went back down, motionless. Understanding the speed, you know you have to react fast to play the game. Uh, I think he got caught in a situation where, you know, he exposed his chest to that to that injury. Uh, as it was happening live when watching it, you, you knew something wasn't right. You knew it was something we hadn't seen before due to the, the player's reaction and, and how their faces were and how they were taking it. And it wasn't until later that I realized that they had circled around the injury as he was receiving CPR and shielding us off from seeing that. And we we had to see their faces and their reactions right there live and on TV. And that's, that's a feeling, you know, immediately as a coach and as a father also uh, of a 20-year-old who went through football, uh, you know, your stomach, you know, heart drops to your stomach and you immediately feel for that young man. Yeah, I think, I think the thing as former players and coaches, the thing that I was struck by is that I knew that that wasn't normal. Like, you know what a concussion fall looks like. You know what a ACL or a shoulder dislocate. I mean, all of this uh, things that are abnormal are kind of normalized to football players. So when I watched it live, my wife said, oh, it looks like he got a concussion. And I said, that's not a concussion fall. 
we immediately knew that that wow. was something different, right? Talk a little bit about some of the injuries you've seen, whether it's been as a player or as a coach, and how some of those things, those injuries to players have just kind of become normalized in a sport that is all about violence. Uh, you hit it right on the head, the normalized word there. And it's, it's sad that even our reactions to concussions and what the body does, you know, visually, what we watch and see, uh, when you see someone go through a concussion and the hit and the emotions afterwards, it's, it's, it's normal to us and we're, we're numb to that. So uh, I think we all expect, uh, you know, we see players going on with these injuries and we expect them to hop right up or even if they get carted off, we expect to see some motion from them eventually when they come back to it. So uh, it, it is kind of crazy and kind of sad, you know, how, how we're, we're used to and numb to uh, the reaction of someone getting knocked out in this violent sport that we play. Um, but, yeah, over the years, you know, I myself have had some mild concussions. Uh, and most of mine, I, I was conscious for and I, you know, didn't realize what they were until after the game usually. And nothing I'd ever really had to be taken out of a game for. But I'm telling you now, at the age of 37, I know my memory is not what it should be because of the game, but it, it comes with the territory, right? Being a father, uh, I'll tell you, I had a, a young man, uh, uh, my, my son, we ended up adopting. Uh, we adopted him and met him at the age of 12, Joey. We had a chance to be young parents and watch him go through high school football. So sitting in the stands versus being on the sideline, uh, it's two totally different feelings. With any injury, his senior year, I had a chance to watch him in his playoff game, uh, have a great season. But uh, his last game, he ended up breaking his collarbone. And if you know, if you've seen someone break their collarbone, it's, it's, it's probably a, it's usually a hard injury to spot and, and diagnose right away. So he went back in there and he played a snap or two more and ended up coming out. But yeah, just, just in general, um, whether you're a parent or a fan or a player or a coach, you know, some of the things that the culture of football has kind of shaped you to see, it is pretty wild. But I don't think anything prepared us for uh, what we saw with him. Yeah. And I, I think what the NFL has done a really good job of, and this was before it was always about what's on the front of the jersey and not what's on the back, you know, and these layers of NFL being called the no fun league. You can't celebrate. You can't draw attention to yourself. You can't really even monetize mm -hmm. yourself because if you took your helmet off, 95% of the players, the average American wouldn't be able to recognize. And what normally happens with an injury, whether it be a concussion, a torn ACL, a broken leg or whatever it is, the TV crew says, oh, we're going to go off for commercial and they go off for commercial. You know, somebody tries to sell us a car or tries to sell us T-Mobile or whatever it is. And then we come back and they've swept the person off and like it never happened before. The difference with this is the ESPN crew did an amazing job, but it was a long time and it was live TV. And the part that everyone was struck by was the reaction of the players. That's how you knew it wasn't normal when you see Stefan Diggs crying and you see people holding their right. mouths. And then the NFL turns around and, oh, we're going to give people a five minute warm up and then we're going to be ready to go. And you could immediately tell that the two coaches, McDermott and Taylor, got together. They said, no, we're going to go to the locker room for a minute and see if we can come out. And everything I've heard is when they got to the locker room, the NFL didn't know what to do. It was the players that said, no, nah, we're done. Because all of us start right. thinking about, well, what about the playoff implications? And what about this? Because, you know, the Super Bowl is on this. 
And the player said, no, because when you start thinking about getting hurt, that's when you need to stop playing. Right. So, you know, one of the things that's so hard, you know, and what people don't know, because old school NFL or college football after the game, you didn't get along with people. It's the fans that are rivals, right? The the Packer fans and the Viking fans, the Bears fans and the Packer fans, you know, the Alabama and the Auburn fans, the players are really, it's really a brotherhood because you're putting your life in another person's hands, right? Um, And that's Mm -hmm. the part that's hard to give up when we're all done. You talked about being 37 and then going into coaching after, after your career. Talk about why you went into coaching and did maintaining that brotherhood and that community, was that did that play a factor in you deciding you were to be a coach? Absolutely. Um, it was still my way of still being a part of the game. And just like you, Adam, I had a chance to go play some semi-pro ball, make a little change here and there, you know, right after college uh, in a couple of different states. But I know ultimately my long-term attachment to the game will be through coaching. With my education, with my, uh, my undergraduate being physical education, it was something I wanted to do with all the different all the things we can have, all the ways we can be different from someone else, all, all, the, all the ways that you can, you know, uh, find a way to be separated in this world. Uh, football has been a way for me to connect with people no matter where I'm at. It's been common ground for me, and it's been, it's been a situation where whether I'm in a city or out in the country, uh, whether I'm in Indiana, Ohio, or Illinois, uh, some of the places I've been, it's naturally connected myself with people I normally wouldn't have been connected with. So it was the easy transition for myself. When you talk about a brotherhood, um, you know, even outside of coaching and playing, sports unites this world and this country in particular. So it's it's an easy way to stay connected and uh, find common ground with someone you usually wouldn't. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. I think you were talking about at 37, not having the memory you think you should have at 37, me at 51, God help us. I, And you just don't know, right? The impact that the impacts have had. And the thing that people see on TV, whether it's college football, high school football, professional football, they see the big hits. They don't see the everyday practice of your brain sloshing around in your head, bouncing against the back of your skull, right? They don't see those things. So you talked really well about it, you know, how football has created community for you, for us. Um, it bridges whether you live in a rural area or an urban area, whether our guys from Florida who played with us or our guys from inner city Chicago mm-hmm. or our guys from rural Wisconsin. They were they would all go to each other's homecoming games, you know, those kind of things. But the reality is we know more than now more now than ever about the impact of the game on our overall health what fears do you have as you get older right as a husband as a father as a grandfather about the impacts of not the injuries but even on the the hurts that you've had on your overall health and well-being you know as i have a uh, we've got three three of our own now including the oldest that I spoke about. He's 20, the youngest is three, and our middle is five. Two years ago, um, and I found myself, and like you said, I played quarterback in college, but I found myself at a weight that I could have played offensive lineman. So I started on started to embark on a fitness journey to make sure that I was uh, putting myself in, in better health so I can 
be around for my grandchildren so I can run around with my kids, so I can go outside and throw the ball in the yard. Outside of the selfish reasons, I wanted to look like I played quarterback in college before. From a concussion standpoint, you know, being a coach, being a father, really being a student of the game, as you talk about kind of the, what I call the concussion epidemic here, you know, the last 10 years, or more so 10 or 12 years ago when I started diving deep into it and people, parents were being a little more afraid of putting their kids in, a, in, in little league. I, that's when I was going through grad school and I, I got a chance to dive and study more about the brain uh, equipment and take some time and, and really figure out what's, uh, what's best for my players as a coach and what, what situations I can put them through to make sure that they're safe in this game of football. Uh, but as a father, I'm going to approach that age here soon where my, my son is going to want to play football and I have to think back and think about what I studied and understand that the age I started football at, eight or nine, may not be appropriate for him. It probably won't be appropriate for him. Uh, my gut tells me to wait to wait till his body's a little more developed and get closer to 12 or 13 years old because what they don't tell you when you're buying this equipment, when you're fitting your son or even daughter for their helmets and shoulder pads is that these are just miniature versions. These helmets are just miniature versions of products made for the human brain at full development as a, as a man. They're not, not brain and designed to protect something for a child something for uh, even a preteen. Uh, so I, I have to face that tough conversation here one year and, and have it with my wife and, and see when's the appropriate time, even as a head football coach uh, here soon, to, to fight that battle with my son is, is, is something I don't look forward to. <laughs> so, um, but it's, 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 it's what you got to do. You have to be, have to be protected young, young ones. Well, and I did, I did the same thing with my son. I mean, there was a point where he wanted to play tackle football in elementary school. And, and I just chose to have him play flag as long as he could. It also gave you, you're so busy either thinking about getting hit or hitting. You don't know, as we would talk about alignment, assignment, responsibility, right? Flag football helped him understand how to play football better. So we prolonged that till I think he was in middle school and it really helped. But when I think back and I tell my story as I, you know, talk about the work I do in higher education and beyond, and as a first generation student, the reality is I wouldn't have went to college without football. I didn't know if that college was a reality for me. Now, the challenge is I went to college and only saw myself as a football player, not at one school, but at two. That's why, you know, I had to take a couple breaks, right, is because I was a football player only. And that definition was really in my mind. Now you sit and you recruit and recruiting is never about the kid. It's always about the family more than anything, the mother. Right. And you sit and talk to families who sometimes feel like football is a way out for their son and not just a way out, but at times the only way out. Hawking colleges and talk turning out a bunch of NFL players at some point. So how do you have conversations with those students as well as with their families about life after and really what you're trying to develop with your guys so that they don't put all the eggs in the basket of being a football player? Yes. Sometimes throughout the recruiting process, early on in the initial conversation, we have uh, as we introduce the school and ourselves, uh, sometime in that early conversation, we, we typically ask the question, what that young man wants to do after his time at Hawking College. 
being that we're a two-year institution, the junior college, uh, it takes them two years to get through the program, uh, typically usually sometimes one year in a, in a semester. But uh, we ask them if they want to get, you know, directly into the workforce and a job right after the two years of Hockey College, or do they plan on transferring to a four-year institution? And uh, with that, it, 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 you, you start shaping the mind there, um, you know, post-football conversation or even post-Hockey College and start really pushing a long-term uh, thought process. Uh, as they start to develop uh, at Hockey College and, and earn a starting spot or uh, a spot on the depth chart uh, and experience on the playing field, you start to, you know, help mold the thought process in terms of, you know, if you do transfer, plan on transferring to a four-year institution, where do you see yourself playing? And, you know, nine times out of ten, early on, you know, they're throwing around these power five school names like Ohio State, or, you know, Michigan or wherever, uh, wherever their dream school is. So these dream school conversations start turning into realistic conversations. So, so our, our job as a staff and as a coach is saying, Hey, you know, that's that's cool. Let's keep aiming towards that. Right now, your performance might not say that you can play there, but hey, you know, uh, what's what's going to be the back point if those schools don't pan out? Uh, and we we help sh shape that thought process, not only with our football staff, but also um, we've got trio on campus. So uh, the the tutors and our mentors over there really help uh, shape that thought process. Um, it's it's been it's always a challenge, uh, and as a young person should feel in college. They should always be inspired and never feel like they're being limited. So we want to let them chase that dream. The, the closer they get to graduation or their end of time of high college, uh, the, the closer, you know, the more we start to have that conversation to say, all right, Michigan's not calling. You know, Ohio State's not calling. Uh, hey, hey, what's next? What's the backup plan? Let's get something rolling. Um, but along the way, uh, when you talk about shaping a young man or woman when they come to the program, we try to introduce them to as many people, many resources on campus right away, and uh, as many people that look like them uh, to see them and, and where they, what they're doing in life uh, and, and how they got through college and, and maybe come from a place similar to where they came from and, and what their experience in college did for them. So they can see, hey, this person's doing pretty well, you know, Maybe maybe you can be like them, you know, and, and, and still be happy with life and find something outside of football. But just really uh, see it as a tool. Uh, and unfortunately, you have to introduce them to the business side of football too. Um, it's it's a tool. It's a tool. It's it's a tool for you to navigate and pay uh, pay for your education and get through college. Yeah, it's a really good point that you're saying. First, shout out to Trio. Been doing their thing since 1965, uh, changing lives in this nation. One of the things that this reminds me of, Craig, is there's so many of our guys, right? When I still remember recruiting you, meeting with your, your family, South Bend Clay High School, right? And talking... All of our guys thought, okay, when I leave JUCO, I'm going to Alabama. I'm going to Wisconsin. I'm going to... Literally, we would have guys that would look at NFL combine stats around athletes that were being in the combine and they'd say, well, my numbers are the same. I want to do this. But what happened with us is we built because, you know, again, shout out to Coach Warren, to Dr. Becker, all the people that helped build the Golden Eagle football program when we were there. 
we really did care as much about our guy at the end of the bench as we did our All-American quarterback. We loved them all, right? And so what happened was, is when guys would start thinking where I'm going to go next, part of the conversation that we would have is, those those power five places, they are in the business of winning. They are not going to love you as a bench warmer as much as they're going to love the guy that's paying their mortgage. That's just the reality of the business. And so what happened is most of our guys ended up D2, NAIA, D3, um, FCS people because they wanted to, first off, as a player, all you want to do is play. Last thing that you don't want as a football player is sitting on the bench. And they wanted to replicate that same experience. And by the two years, by the time the two years had finished at Rock Valley, they realized that they wouldn't find that at the school that's on the front of people's sweatshirt. Talk about how that culture, you know, helped change maybe a little bit of your perspective on not just what you thought you could do, but what kind of program and the next step that you thought was best for you? Uh, you're absolutely right. It's like you have to provide a constant reminder and give them a constant reminder that, you know, we do make up 75 to 85% of these rosters. Uh, you have to have someone around them who can relate, who knows what they've gone through, who they feel comfortable pouring themselves, you know, uh, pouring themselves into and pouring themselves out for these, these universities and colleges. So uh, the constant reminder helps giving the students and the student athletes and these players uh, a platform to speak on, you know, uh, the right platform to speak on also. It's not always social media, uh, but to be able to put together a board uh, like the NFLPA um, at, at the smaller schools or bigger schools, whatever it may be, to speak out um, and, and speak, speak when the time is right, and, and be and have some meaningful topics to speak about before these situations do come about. Uh, we put together a student-led group here on our small campus uh, to talk about some of the changes they wanted to see outside athletics and, and resources on campus. So uh, they're starting to get their voice heard, but you know, on a, at a on a bigger platform or some of these bigger schools. Uh, really have to, as a coach, uh, the coaches of those institutions have to help shape the thoughts and you know, the voices and, and, and make sure that they empower them uh, with the right tools to, to go up and, and speak up about uh, these topics because it, it's they have to be the ones to help vouch for you also. Um, so that's that, that would be a big piece to it. Well, and it isn't, it isn't lost on any of us when we watch whether it's last chance you and Juco games or it's high school or it's college or it's power five, you know, the national championship on Monday or NFL that 70% or more of the people out there competing are black men, right? That's just the reality. And people, black men like us are, are putting not only their future, lives and pain on the line, but they're present, right? That's just the reality. And then the challenge is it's almost impossible for us when we're done playing to get jobs as head coaches of those same NFL power five teams. God help you. You want to be a, a GM or an athletic director, those kind of things. How do players 
the ones who are risking their life and limb, like Tamar Hamlin, like all of us, how do we act and demand that the same programs where we have sacrificed our well-being, our overall lives for other people to be able to get rich and pay their mortgages, that those programs see us as someone after football who can not just be the quality control coach, not just be the hype man, but can be the head man. How do we do that? As players, right? The NFL players had a huge impact last week. Everybody's wearing love for DeMar. Everyone knows DeMar. His charity wanted to raise $2,500 for toys for kids, and now it's at seven point something million dollars, right? The players realizing we, because we are the commodity, our bodies, that we have a voice and to be able to demand that we, after football, are considered to be coaches and administrators and front office people. How do we demand that of the schools, of the uh, owners of teams, to be able to see us beyond what we can do on the field, but what we can do for them as coaches? Community outreach is the start of it for us. So you move them from the playing court or field, you move them from the classroom and get them in front of people. Uh, and putting in an effort uh, and showing some unselfish acts, right? Showing that they care about the community, showing that they're going to, you know, be around if, if, if the community needs them to, you know, help sweep the streets. Our, our guys have, have painted public pools. They've cleaned up parks before. So being able to show, uh, you know, show these young men and women, let them show themselves who they are outside of a playing court or arena uh, and outside the classroom, uh, it's, that's been the start of it. So we require that our student athletes do two community service acts each semester. So hopefully usually four before they're done with the year, uh, whether it's 30 minutes or a couple hours. Uh, that, that helps, uh, helps, especially when you bring, you know, whether they're black or white, some of these student athletes from the city to some of these rural areas to where you know, there are new faces and they stand out. You know, the community engagement is a big piece to it. Uh, we also equip these young men and women with uh, the start of some professional development is what it is, essentially. It's how to navigate on social media. How do you carry yourself in public? How to represent our school in a positive manner to where you're respected, our school's respected, our coach respected. And you're, we give them the their constant reminder that they're representing themselves in the school that they came from and their parents and family. So uh, the community engagement, outreach, uh, the professional development is a big piece. Uh, but we also want them before, you know, hopefully any political related uh, uh, issues come up on campus that they're involved in things outside of that. They're making their voice heard out, you know, with, you know, any, any and every situation they can be involved in. Getting, getting involved on campus uh, is something that we push for every semester. For us, being such a young, uh, and I say young as we've only been around since 2015, being such a young athletic department, um, our presence is still being molded, and uh, we're still we're still making our, our voices heard in the community, uh, to where you know people in our state of Ohio, where we're located, you know they still don't know that Hockey College has athletics. So we push for them to get out there and, and build, help continue to build our foundation, and let them know, hey, you have a very unique situation where you can put your name on something 
and, and, and look back on it and know that you made a change. So getting involved before any type of, uh, you know, crucial situation where they needed to speak up on happens is, is a big part of it also. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent right. It's, it's, it's never lost on me that, um, without black men and our bodies in the, the sport of football, there is no sport of football. Right. And then when we stand up and want to be seen as whole people that Craig Moore, wasn't just a football player, he had a whole life. Right. And there were things that were important to him. There were guys who were battling addiction. There were people who were battling family issues. There were people who were engaged socially and leaders of student organizations on every campus. But then when, when what has happened readily is when those same Black men stand up and say, I need you to see me as a whole person and what I'm going through, then we get called political and we get told to shut up and dribble essentially saying, stand up there and shuck and jive and play for me and put your body on the line. And I will even buy a jersey with your name on it. But I don't want to feel uncomfortable to think about the reality of life you have to deal with. How do we get, and you kind of talked about this, society in general, how do you do that on your campus to get the campus to care right? About the whole people and to see the whole people within your student athletes, whether they're black men or not, but in particular, our black men, how do you get the campus and others to see them as real live human beings with real lives? And when they raise concerns to not tell them, hey, go sit down and shut up and dribble. I think it's just digging down into your basic basic human rights and instinct uh, and just seeing this person without color, seeing this person and understanding that they are human, they have feelings, they, you know, and it, it goes back to, you know, finding common ground like we talked about with the, with the, the world of sports and, and connecting, uh, you know, different people in different places. But it's just having a basic human instinct to want to care about a human being. It's, 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 it's that to me it's that basic it's that basic that's why that's why we do our best to put these young men and women out in public so, so they know their hometown they know where they came from and they get a chance to have a have a conversation with these people uh especially in some of the some of the establishments where our kids go and spend money you know they're going to go out to eat and get haircuts in these places get to know them get to know them where they came from understands their struggle uh and, and there's always some type of common ground once the conversation has starts and it's written on my board, uh, my president, uh, Dr. Young, she, she uh, inspired me to put that on the board in my office, have a conversation. And, and you, you know me pretty well, Adam, sometimes I can be as quiet and as chill as they come. So uh, early in my professional career, it's tough sometimes just to go talk to strangers and get out of my comfort zone. But having a conversation, and, and it, that naturally creates some common ground. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. There are a variety of ways that you could support the show, including leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, sharing an episode with a friend, or just reaching out to Adam or myself 
to let us know what you thought of the show. Um, Our email addresses are in the show notes. So until next time, stay uncomfortable.